It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who know you can't get a medical exemption for a hangnail. <laughs> that is true. Or a whole, or or a medical exemption because you really want a philosophical exemption. Or a medical exemption because your great-aunt Tootsie once uh, stubbed her toe after getting her flu shot. Indeed. No, medical exemptions are for medical exemptions that are actual contraindications, Karen. And this podcast, on the other hand, is for everybody. So how is everybody doing today? <laughs> Great. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I am Dr. Nathan Boonster. I'm a pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, it has been a busy and crazy month since last we spoke mm-hmm. a lot has happened in the whole world especially the world around the web i honestly don't even know which one to pick well here's the thing i was looking at all the things and i was like well there's so much going on but everything is related to almost everything is related to california which we're going to be talking about later in the show so i didn't want to pick any of those things but so I wanted to, it is September, and it is the beginning of flu shot season, so it is the time to talk about influenza, and it is especially the time to talk about influenza because uh, this is California-related, although not related to the bills and whatnot that we'll be talking about, but we did have our first pediatric influenza death in California Uh, that was just reported on earlier this week. So it was a child who did have underlying medical problems. Um, I don't think that it talked about whether or not the child was immunized against influenza. But regardless, this is always the first, when I see the first pediatric influenza death of the year, I always want to put out the message and uh, by of the season, that is, I keep saying of the year, I said that on Twitter too. And I mean the the 2019 mm-hmm. 2000 uh, 2020 season um it is worth pointing out mm-hmm. that pediatric influenza deaths happen on the order of 100 or more on average a year that 80 percent or so of those are are not up to date with their flu shot for the season and that there was a good study in 2017 that looked specifically at pediatric influenza deaths and found that the getting the flu shot was very effective. It was 60, 65% effective at preventing pediatric influenza deaths. So of all the times that it's important to get a flu shot, getting kids their flu shot is probably the most important because when kids get their flu shot, they get and spread a lot less influenza and it can save their life. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those seasons too that it's worth uh, bringing up that there are there's no way to perfectly predict, but there are some indicators it might be a little bit earlier of a flu season, so it's not going to hurt to go on out and get your flu shot now, uh, or talk to your doctor about it. A lot of times, you know, the, the the official recommendation is to get it by the end of October if at all possible. So get your flu shot done now, or at least by the end of October. Protect your family, protect your kids. End of rant. Nice rant. Mm. Um, my Around the Web is something that I just saw yesterday, and it actually could launch me into the longest rant possible. So okay. I'll try not to long rant. Okay. 
You let rant as long as you need to rant. You have y- tell my husband that. Okay. <laughs> Ethan Lindenberger, I think it was yesterday, mm-hmm. a couple days ago, posted on the Facebook and on the Twitter a picture, speaking of California, of the yeah. California State Capitol the week of 9-11 where they had set up a memorial to victims of vaccines, children who had died from vaccines. And uh, they had an upside down flag and these pictures looks like they were about eight by eight and a half by 11 photos um, set up with candles and the whole bit. And Ethan posted that because he spotted a picture of himself and reports of his death have been greatly exaggerated. He is actually (laughs) he's alive. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because he was just sort of flummoxed. You know, here's someone who has seen from the inside what the anti-vaccine movement is like. And and I'll say his family, his whole family now is going through the ringer because his brother decided to go away to college and ended up saying, you know what, I got to get vaccinated to go to my school. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm just going to do it and kind of publicly announced it. Um, so the anti-vaccine movement has turned their backs entirely yeah. on the Lindenberger family, including the mother, whom I almost feel bad for because they think that we planted her. You know, right. We sent her to the Dell Big Tree show to I don't know what. Uh, you know, they'll they'll probably decide later that Amy Parker from the CDC is actually the mother or something. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we should take a break, take a back up a step too, just in case somebody hasn't been following. But Ethan Lindenberger is the mm. teenager who's now a, a young adult who uh, went on Reddit and tried to figure out how he was uh, from an anti-vaccine family. He was unimmunized and went on Reddit to try to figure out how he could get himself immunized and that told his story and then was kind of catapulted relatively rapidly to being a prominent figure that people know now and is to uh, talk before congress is doing done a ted talk etc so and Mm -hmm. in his family at least uh, until now had been not necessarily on his side and then his mom had still been you know had gone on dale bigtree and and talked about uh why she's anti-vaccine and she's still anti-vaccine, I understand, correct? She's just now being told that she's a crisis actor, basically a plant. Right, yeah. She, she's still anti-vaccine. And I'll just tell you, it's uh, our April episode, episode 28, had featured Ethan Lindenberger. And you, if you haven't heard it, you really should listen because he is just delightful. Mm-hmm. He is wonderful. And so to be told that he's dead was odd. Was it a threat? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, are they saying you should be dead or he's dead to his mother? We, I don't think so. I think that they literally just printed off random pictures of kids that they had available to them. One interesting thing I will note is that this was posted on a Facebook page that I won't name that's run by a prominent Colorado anti-vaxxer and her son was among the photos of children in who are, you know, victims of vaccines because he has a peanut allergy. But my note about this is I was reading through kind of saying, wondering, you know, how are people reacting to his tweets about not being dead? And one person, I think, put it so succinctly. She just wrapped up everything that anti-vaxxers believe. And I'm talking about hardcore anti-vaxxers. And she said, every vaccine injures somebody 
everyone who's been vaccinated is vaccine injured. They're all injured. And I thought, mm. yep, that's that is the company line. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, we all had a temporary break in our skin <laughs> from I the mean, needle. Right. My immune system was a little bit like, whoa, hey there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's so interesting about this. This is the kind of in recent weeks, we've seen this pattern of. of Anti-vaxxer do do something that embarrasses the anti-vaccine community. Um, and in this case, mm -hmm. it's not Ethan's mother, but the f kind of the family and the way that the brother kind of flip sides and whatnot. But then we've also mm -hmm. seen it in the uh, person who attacked Dr. Pan on the street. We've seen it in the person who just mm -hmm. recently threw a menstrual cup on the uh, assembly in California. You see these and suddenly all of them are paid opposition or planted right. opposition. It's just that the, there's always the response of, well, we don't we we, we don't um, agree with this behavior, but they're really paid opposition anyway. And, and really the victims deserved it. Like that's the summary of every comment section mm -hmm. on any of these stories is not just right. like taking this event into consideration, saying this was bad behavior, but taking it right. and then making everybody out to be the enemy in bizarre ways like conspiracy ways it's it's right what really do, what do i always say nathan unusual. i'm always telling people never discount the effect of the conspiracy theorist on the anti-vaccine movement and just to sort of bring us back to this image of these photos posted here there was one of a minnesota baby who was her death was reported as SIDS. Mm -hmm. um, her name is Evie Clo Clobis, and she, she's been also on Del Big Tree's um, show. And she's been sort of she's bought billboards all over the Twin Cities. Apparently, she's trying to buy them all over the country, mm. and she's got big plans, I guess. But um, it's just sort of the same thing where she went to the anti-vaccine movement and said what happened. And they said, well, clearly vaccines. But as it turns out, uh, Dorit Rice wrote a wonderful, just very gracious piece in Skeptical Raptor discussing what actually happened using the materials that they put on the Dell Big Tree show. And the medical examiner reported that the baby had, you know, pooling of blood. So mm. the blood settled to her face in, in the front of her body, showing that when she died, she was on her face. Uh, and wow. and there was some purge liquid, too, on the sheets of the bed that sort of showed that uh, wh how she was laying in bed. And so it wasn't even SIDS. It was positional asphyxiation, which is just devastating. And I'm, I'm so sorry for this baby. But again, it's it's just one of those things where anything is seen as a vaccine injury and they will take you in as long as you're willing to believe it. And there's sort of this lovely in a way, but also perverse comfort that they provide to parents. But it also gets parents really whipped up and really angry at the wrong things. And that's why we have people who just think that their children's lives are literally at risk because we want them vaccinated they think that their children will literally die if they get vaccinated and 
it's just not true. And I wish that was the, pr- the comfort being provided to parents mm-hmm. to say, I'm, I'm so sorry this thing happened. It's unfair. It's not okay that your, your baby is gone, but it wasn't the vaccines. I'm here to support you anyhow. And that's not what happens. What happens is no. I, I have this agenda I want to play out through you. Yeah, you, it, it's almost something that you watch in real time sometimes with uh, when when a tragedy happens. Mm-hmm. And so it's happened many times. And yeah, I don't have any really good way to respond to that. <laughs> the hard thing for us is that I used to have this policy that if a parent had a seriously disabled or child or a child who had passed, that we just sort of let them be I didn't want to it's not that I didn't want to touch it was just like life is hard enough for them they don't need us in there but then Larry Cook came along and started monetizing these Mm -hmm. stories for himself and promoting them and pushing them way out there and now it's just and you know it's kind of like with Dr. Pan when we talked to him about how he was pushed into doing more legislation now Mm -hmm. we're pushed into having to respond to these claims because there there's so much money going into pushing them out to the public and so you have to come back and say but this isn't true. I'm sorry that this baby is gone, but that's not what happened. Yeah. That is a very delicate tightrope to walk. But it's Im- still mm-hmm. important that facts are presented accurately. And it's important that other children are not endangered by misinformation. It doesn't do anybody mm-hmm. a service or anybody's memory a service to endanger other kids. And so it's, it takes delicate, uh, a delicate approach, but it is important to make sure that accurate facts are out there, regardless of who is making inaccurate claims. But it is, as you said, flu vaccine season. It's time to get your flu shots, get them Mm -hmm. before you get your Halloween candy. And the nice thing is that especially women who are expecting babies and those young, young kiddos, getting those flu shots can make a huge difference because flu can be really devastating for those for those little babies. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, we have 100 pediatric deaths a year and pertussis too. you know, almost all of those pertussis deaths are in those little, little babies. And so I think that people should go out and make themselves feel good about the state of their advocacy by really encouraging those pregnant women in their lives and those mothers of young babies to get vaccinated and to tell them that it's it's a good thing to do. And we do it because we, we ask you to do it because we love your babies, too. Yeah. Saves lives. It, it's... Uh... Uh, protects mothers and babies when you get the flu shot and right. when you get the Tdap. Right, saves lives. Free sticker. <laughs> um, if if you get it at Target, the five dollar Target gift card. Oh. Uh, bragging rights. Yep, good opportunity to take a selfie. Yes, selfie and make sure to you know go to uh, voicesforvaccines.org/gallery and look at our selfies and submit your own with your little band-aid and that way you can be famous for getting a flu shot and nothing is better than that. Well, speaking of famous people, we should probably talk to our guest. Yes, and when we come back it'll be Dr. Pan time.
Dr. Pan, my first question for you is, are, have you started writing a book about how to become more popular with people who already don't like you? <laughs> well, um, I um, uh, was thinking about a book, but probably not that as a topic. So. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. All right, I'll give you that. Um <laughs> Seriously, though, you are very popular for real among a faction of people, and those are parents of children who really depend on herd immunity. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about some of those parents you've met and what drives you to really make sure that California is safe for children so that they don't have to worry about catching measles while they're at school. As a pediatrician, um, when I was in medical school, I actually trained at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, learned microbiology from Julius Younger, who worked with Jonas Salk on the polio vaccine, uh, remembered get, having lectures where we were taught about vaccine-preventable diseases like measles and then being told that we probably wouldn't see them uh, in our careers because of vaccination. Uh, but then in my fourth year of medical school, uh, actually spent a stint with the U.S. Public Health Service up in Philadelphia in 1991 when there was a very large measles outbreak at the time uh, where unfortunately over 900 people were infected and uh, nine children died and uh, certainly uh, realized that these diseases weren't as far away as uh, I thought they were when I was in medical school earlier and certainly that made a uh, large impression on me about the importance of uh, of vaccination. I would make note that while some people would point out that that the people who chose not to vaccinate also didn't, uh, also rejected other types of medical care as well, uh, that that approximately half of the people who were infected actually weren't part of that group that uh, rejected both vaccines and medical care. And in fact, some of the children who died were not either. Not that anyone deserves to die from a preventable disease. And uh, I think it's a reminder that contagious diseases are contagious. They don't just affect the people who make the decisions not to vaccinate. They actually affected the whole community. And other people uh, were affected in very significant ways. And so vaccination is both... Uh, a decision that protects your own children and your own family, but is also a decision that uh, impacts the entire community. And that's something that uh, I learned uh, through that experience. And and certainly, uh, as I've gone through my training, of course, met families who uh, had children who could not be protected directly through vaccines. They depended on other people around them to get vaccinated so that their children could be protected. And, and certainly those families uh, are families that uh, I took care of as a, uh, as a resident, later as a practicing physician, later being a faculty member at UC Davis, which is a tertiary care center, uh, as a primary care doctor. Um, also, uh, certainly as someone who is active in the community, the importance of uh, community immunity to be sure that all people in the community are protected is something that's uh, been uh, very important and uh, you know that's around vaccines but frankly you know we do a lot of things uh, to try to protect people in the community as well 
Uh, we talk about built environment and transportation when it comes to obesity, and uh, we, uh, you know, the, how do we improve schools for education, and uh, which of course has an impact on health. And someone who's studied public health understands that uh, it's it's not just about direct health services, but so when we think about vaccines, uh, we need to recognize that the success of vaccination is not just about the biologic, immediate biological properties of the vaccine and for the person who receives it, but it's a uh, larger community impact. And in fact, uh, after I got elected to the legislature, interestingly enough, one of the first bills I did uh, was not about vaccination, but was around screening all newborns for uh, severe mm -hmm. combined immunodeficiency. Uh, these are children who don't, are born with essentially without an immune system. And uh, they they need uh, uh, broad ranging uh, um, protection, and uh, so uh, and there was a way to test all newborns uh, for that condition, and we wanted to be sure that we could identify them so they could get treatment to restore their immune system, and so that was actually one of the first bills I did. It was around newborn screening and screening for children with immunodeficiencies. But of course, we know those children and others. Uh, uh, are also protected when people also get vaccinated. So it's great to screen people uh, for diseases like that. We also need to be sure they can be protected. And uh, so certainly vaccination is, is, is something that uh, uh, allows us to achieve that aim. I think it's so interesting that you, one of your first bills there was a bill that helps identify what is a contraindication to some vaccines. <laughs> And so I imagine that the opposition, whatever opposition there was, if there was to that bill, was characterized quite a bit differently than the opposition that you've seen in the last few years to your vaccine-related bills. Can you tell us a little bit about how unique the opposition to these bills uh, has been? Well, it's um, when, when you talk about people who oppose vaccines, um, one of the things I think uh, I try to... Uh, distinguishes is that uh, you have uh, parents who have been fed misinformation um, who who unfortunately uh, may have a family member a child who may have a disability or some other condition that they have attributed the vaccines uh, uh, and uh, they are just trying to do what's best for their child uh, and then you have other parents who's uh, who who through misinformation have fear and anxiety about vaccines. And, and, and then you have the people who uh, perpetuate the misinformation, who pro oftentimes profit from that. And, uh, and in fact, uh, their economic success may be dependent on their success in discouraging vaccination and then having people turn to uh, alternative uh, um, treatments that they are willing to sell. And, I think one of the things that I uh, that I also had to uh, think about was is that so oftentimes in the pediatric community, right, um, people are looking at these issues as a clinician, where you have a family who may have concerns about vaccines who has still chosen to come and see you as a pediatrician or other uh, clinician, and um, and and so they still decided to come and uh, seek care, uh, even though they may not necessarily want vaccinations. 
but at least they're still coming to seek care from you, right? And so, um, and when you talk to these families about vaccines, uh, it can be somewhat frustrating for uh, at times. Uh, uh, but these are people who, at least, let's put it this way, they were open enough in their mind to seek your help uh, for clinical care, right? And uh, so there's still an opportunity. And most of those types of people are people who've gotten misinformation. Um, when you move to the political arena, uh, for, for uh, now you're dealing more with the people who um, uh, have a vested interest in um, pushing out uh, misinformation about vaccines, uh, who, uh, who are opposing um, uh, legislation uh, because it may harm their own personal interests. And it's a very different kind of engagement that you have uh, on the legislative arena. And I think we need to understand uh, that they have to be distinguished from each other uh, because uh, sometimes uh, I know that uh, some, uh, time, some pediatricians may feel like, well, why are we having uh, such a, um, I guess, uh, why in the public arena, in the policy arena, is the debate so uh, heated? Um, can't we just all get along? And it's a very different kind of conversation to have in the public arena with people who oppose legislation around vaccines than with a family who still chose to come see a clinician and be that clinician, and they have questions or even anxieties and fears about vaccine, and they have, may still in the end choose not to vaccinate, but at least they, uh, but it's a, that's a very different kind of conversation. There's been sort of an evolution of thought in the California legislature as far as bills. And when you started, I remember, I don't even know what year it was, like 1832, there was a bill about, you know, providing more education to parents, which seemed really reasonable at the time. Um, and then California eliminated non-medical exemptions. And then this session, you had a bill that really made sure that people weren't faking their medical exemptions. So can you kind of tell me about, was it an evolution of the reality on the ground or an evolution in your own thought that led to that? Uh, so, uh, so what happened was is that in California in uh, 2010, there was a large pertussis outbreak uh, that resulted in the death of 10 infants. Um, this was right before I was elected to the legislature. Uh, as a result of that uh, pertussis outbreak, uh, the legislature actually uh, added a requirement for pertussis vaccination at seventh grade for school. Uh, and when people studied what happened during that pertussis outbreak where literally hundreds of um, infants were hospitalized, and I mentioned 10 died, uh, they actually linked the uh, outbreak to areas with high rates of personal belief exemptions. In fact, that was published in pediatrics. And right. uh, so there were some conversations. By then, I was in the legislature about, okay, well, um, we just had this pertussis outbreak, uh, uh, what should we do about that? And at the time, the state of Washington had just passed a law to require that every child who got a personal belief exemption had to also certify they had uh, 
been counseled by a licensed healthcare professional uh, before they could get that exemption. And at that point in time, I would make note that California had one of the laxest laws regarding vaccination. Essentially, uh, a family, uh, when they sent the kid to school and they didn't have their immunizations, all they had to do is essentially tell the school and on a piece of paper that they didn't want to get their child vaccinated. And that was enough. They didn't have to give any reasons, no explanation. They just had to say that I've chosen not to vaccinate my child, hand the piece of paper to the school, and they were in. And uh, we recognize that uh, uh, as a result of that pertussis outbreak that we needed to do something to uh, decrease the number of personal belief exemptions, which had been rising for over a decade. Uh, and that uh, that trend line was uh, leading children to be in danger. In fact, we had 10 infants die. So, um, so it wasn't enough just to require vac a pertussis vaccine at seventh grade. We need to deal with the personal belief exemption issue. And uh, so I authored AB 2109, which was modeled after that state of Washington law. And in fact, uh, as the bill was coming to its uh, conclusion, uh, legislatively in terms of getting it out of the legislature, we even had the initial results from the state of Washington law that showed that they reduced their personal belief exemptions by about 20% in the first year of implementation. So we were pretty excited about that. Okay, great. You know, we can try to bend the curve on, on that with this bill. Uh, we were successful in getting it passed uh, and getting it to Governor Brown, uh, who did in his signing message to the bill ex express some reservations. Uh, including uh, some concerns about, you know, religious freedom and wrote in his signing message essentially uh, a um, message that said, well, we, we need to, uh, um, you know, respect people's religious beliefs. Uh, and uh, while that raised some concerns in the, among immunization advocates, I think that uh, we worked with the governor and uh, he understood the importance of trying to keep our kids safe. Uh, but, you know, he was a former Jesuit, uh, uh, went to seminary school, and certainly that was uh, something that uh, he had uh, raised. Uh, now, one of the things I learned in doing that particular bill was that uh, while I had physicians and public health experts on my side, uh, that the opposition uh, was mainly uh, composed of uh, parents. and. The, and while we were successful, the optics did not look good to have a bunch of doctors go tell parents that they were wrong, okay? Hmm. Even when the parents were wrong, that does not go over too well in the legislature. And so um, I did, uh, in, in, in passing 2009, uh, learned that uh, if we were going to do another vaccination bill, we need to do things a little differently. Uh, so AB 2009, passed in the law, and it gets implemented a couple years later, and uh, I get elected to the state senate in uh, 2014. And in 2015, uh, during, after the first year of implementation of 2109, two things were happening at the same time in January of 2015. Uh, one was we were getting the reports from the Department of Public Health uh, as to what happened to the personal belief exemption. Uh, in that first year of implementation of AB 2109. And hooray, we got a 20% drop in the personal belief exemption. So uh, very similar to what happened in the state of Washington. 
unfortunately, uh, we had also been following what was happening in the state of Washington in the subsequent years because they had now implemented their bill for about three years, and after their first 20% drop, they essentially the rates started creeping back up again. Uh, and uh, so it was not a sustained drop. Uh, and so although we celebrated that drop, we also recognized that this was probably not the solution. The second event that was happening at the same time was the first reports were coming out about a measles outbreak uh, that was traced back to Disneyland that probably began in December of 2014, but now the reports were coming out in January of 2015 uh, of measles in California and I think in um, uh, Utah, uh, and then those kept spreading across uh, both the state and the country. Uh, that was my first year in the state Senate. Uh, I had colleagues of mine who were interested in vaccination, uh, but I, at that point in time, was not planning on a vaccination bill. After all, we were just implementing 2109. But as that measles outbreak spread, we were hearing from parents. Parents were calling not only my office, but many of my colleagues. Parents called and said, um, we need you to do something. All right? I have an infant too young to get vaccinated, and I'm afraid to go outside because we have this measles outbreak. Uh, you had clinics closed because someone came in with measles. You had a daycare closed because someone came with measles. You had news reports of Measles, if you were exposure, if you were rode on public transit, or if you went to a Costco or other store, or went to a restaurant, and people said it's time for us to do something about this. And so uh, I and actually Senator Ben Allen, uh, who was one of the, the uh, legislators who was interested in doing something about vaccinations, uh, then uh, decided to author AB, uh, SB 277 and simply abolish the non-medical exemptions, uh, given the fact that we have this ongoing measles outbreak. Uh, the other thing that happened that we did is also is we took the parents who were calling and started connecting them with each other and said, okay, we need to have a parent group as the face of this bill. They need to be the sponsors. And so they established uh, Vaccinate California, who was, which was the sponsor of the bill, and the face of the bill, the parents, these parents who basically said, look, I have a child who needs protection. Uh, we had uh, people like uh, uh, Ariel Loop, whose child actually got infected. Uh, she had a baby who was infected in Disneyland during this outbreak. Um, the, the, uh, we had uh, Rhett Crowett, who uh, is a child who uh, was being treated with leukemia. Uh, and they were very vocal about, you know, he was very vocal with his family about the importance of uh, having kids immunized at school so he could be safe at school, and many other parents as well. And so, uh, so for, AV, uh, for SB 277, uh, you know, we had parents who uh, went out and uh, organized. Uh, they got their... Uh, um, school boards, their uh, city councils, the, the uh, county board of supervisors to adopt resolutions in support of uh, vaccinations. Uh, uh, we would, all, of course, we had support from the medical community and various health and public health groups. 
But we also, because these are school requirements, reached out to uh, educational organizations uh, as well, uh, getting uh, uh, labor unions representing workers at schools uh, to support. We also reached out to the business community and remind them that uh, the disruption caused by uh, by outbreaks certainly is not good for business. Having to put a sign in your store saying that you came and you were exposed to measles is not a good thing. Uh, we also uh, to got local governments on board. So in addition to the parents, of course, uh, petitioning their local government, we reminded them the cost of outbreaks to local government. It's county health officer, you know, health departments as well as the state health department that's spending money doing contact tracing and uh, having to quarantine or shut down uh, uh, places uh, because of the outbreak. And so we built a, a large coalition uh, with many different stakeholders uh, on board uh, to uh, support the bill. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly uh, we had uh, uh, you know, opposition from uh, people who uh, uh, you know, opposed the vac vaccines. Uh, uh, but uh, I think that uh, the out certainly the outbreak that was ongoing during most of uh, the time the bill was going through uh, uh, reminded people how important uh, community immunity was and that we were losing it. You know, uh, that uh, right. because of the loss of that community immunity, we, uh, uh, that, that's why people were being exposed to measles. And uh, so... Uh, even though we had, uh, you know, vociferous opposition, uh, including death threats uh, to uh, myself and Senator Allen and my colleagues and our staff and so forth, uh, we were able to get the bill uh, uh, through and, uh, and signed the law by Governor Brown. Right. And then what happened was that uh, you had some issues with medical exemptions. Yes. Well... So, uh, so what happened is after SB 277 passed, I would make note that uh, that in crafting SB 277, um, we wanted to be sure we were very focused and uh, in the bill. So we didn't try to put in a whole lot of different things in the bill. What we just did is we simply abolished the non-medical exemptions, which basically is the personal belief exemption in 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 code. So we did not actually uh, uh, substantially uh, change the uh, medical exemption portion of the law. Uh, we, we felt that we should just, you know, make it very simple and clear what the bill does. And uh, so we just simply abolished the non-medical uh, exemption, uh, the personal belief exemption. We didn't have a religious exemption in code. Uh, I would make note that there was one change to the medical exemption that was made at the request of the Assembly Health Committee, but certainly it was not part of the original bill, uh, and so there was very little change to the medical exemption. Uh, I would make note that uh, when I was asked questions about what would happen when SB 277, it was passed into law, uh, what would happen, I very honestly said that medical exemptions would be at the, under SB 277 under the discretion of the physician's judgment, because that was existing law. And since we didn't change that, that would remain that way. Uh, certainly it was not a promise that uh, I would never change that in the future. That was really a description of the state of what the law would be after passage of SB 277. So SB 277 passes and uh, becomes implemented the following year. 
and uh, we expected that there would be you know, some increase in the medical exemption rate because there are probably some people, the personal belief exemption was so easy and convenient that they simply got a personal belief exemption. But what we saw was is that, first of all, we saw that the medical exemption rate actually um, uh, uh, well, quadrupled uh, by this year, this, uh, this school year. Uh, so it, re so it, it doubled, then tripled, then quadrupled uh, from uh, the passage of 277 in the subsequent years. Uh, we also uh, saw that uh, there were, that some physicians, a very small number, but uh, began advertising medical exemptions. Uh, there were lists being sent around. We saw uh, posts in social media where parents would say they couldn't get a medical exemption from their um, child's physician, so they went and bought one. Uh, we also know that some of the doctors would be willing to provide a medical exemption uh, without the child ever being seen. Uh, so we've had some people just sort of secret shop and uh, report back. Uh, and uh, we also noted that uh, at least when the, as the bill was, uh, SB 27 was being implemented, uh, we had conversations with the, both the uh, California Department of Public Health and the Medical Board of California about what we could do about these uh, uh, physicians who are essentially issuing inappropriate uh, medical exemptions. The medical board was actually uh, pretty straightforward about how challenging it was to uh, investigate these cases because uh, in the normal course of the medical board's business, the patients actually worked with the medical board. In this case, the patient was in cahoots with the doctor and was not cooperating, and that made it much more difficult for the medical board to investigate. Despite these challenges, they at least were able to uh, investigate um, uh, Dr. Bob Sears uh, around one case because there was a parent uh, who was willing to actually uh, provide access to uh, records related to their child and they were able to uh, uh, identify and, uh, and then uh, uh, put him on probation for essentially uh, uh, issuing an inappropriate medical exemption uh, as noted by his, uh, according to his record keeping, his poor record keeping. So, uh, but they said that, that that took a lot of, you know, that uh, um, that was a somewhat, I would say, unique uh, circumstance that allowed them to be able to do that. And uh, so they uh, shared with me how they struggled to try to deal with this because even as um, people would report uh, uh, um, doctors writing inappropriate medical exemptions, uh, that they had difficulty doing investigations. The other thing that we also noted was is that uh, as the Department of Public Health collected data, um, that an increasing number of schools were having uh, um, large numbers of medical exemptions, which was which would be inconsistent with uh, uh, what the epidemiology should uh, tell us. So uh, by the time we authored, uh, by the time uh, we brought SB 276 forward. Uh, there were over 100 schools with medical exemption rates above 10%. And these are not schools composed of children who were transplant recipients or uh, who were being treated with cancer. These are schools uh, uh, where uh, basically uh, there were large numbers of people who uh, probably purchased uh, medical exemptions because it would be inconsistent uh, with what the epidemiology would tell us. Uh, the, uh, 
Uh, we also, uh, there were some uh, investigations done by some newspapers. Uh, the uh, Voice of San Diego uh, actually was able to uh, look at medical exemptions issued by, you know, that were received by the San Diego Unified School District. And um, while they, uh, and identified that, uh, that uh, one physician wrote a third of all of them. Uh, she probably didn't take care of a third of all the children attending that rather large school district. <laughs> and uh, know that she was advertising for medical exemptions on her uh, website. Uh, while the report mainly focused on her as being the person who wrote the most number, I would make note that um, uh, the person who wrote the second highest number of medical exemptions was a holistic physician who was already on probation with the medical board for other uh, negligent actions. Uh, so someone who uh, already uh, had a history of... Uh, of um, suspect actions, uh, uh, and then the person who wrote the third number, most number of medical exemptions in San Diego Unified School District was actually a physician who is a medical consultant to an anti-vax group, and the person who wrote the fourth <laughs> no most number of medical exemptions in San Diego Unified School District was Dr. Bob Sears himself. Yeah, I knew we were getting to him eventually. <laughs> and then the San Jose Mercury got hold of records from several school districts in the Bay Area and uh, certainly noted that uh, there was a small number of physicians who seemed to write most of the medical exemptions, and some of them uh, actually didn't even practice in the Bay Area or practice pediatrics. Uh, so again, accumulating the evidence that uh, there were these physicians who essentially were, appeared to be um, uh, uh, writing inappropriate medical exemptions. Uh, interesting enough, one of the physicians who wrote the most number of medical exemptions in the Bay Area happens to be a happened to be a Sacramento physician, <laughs> uh, who certainly wasn't practicing in the area, um, and uh, we know advertises uh, medical exemptions on her her uh, website. Uh, uh, so, uh, so uh, obviously, this accumulation of evidence that. Uh, that we are having an erosion of our community immunity because of these inappropriate medical exemptions as the medical exemption rate kept rising. That and also the fact that we have now a record number of cases of measles uh, in this country, the largest uh, in over a quarter century, I think gave impetus to saying we need to head this off before uh, these inappropriate medical exemptions uh, lead to another outbreak like the one we had in Disneyland. And I would make note that despite the fact that we've had several cases of people bringing measles to California, uh, we have been fortunate enough that we haven't had an outbreak as large as the one in Disneyland uh, this year uh, so far. Um, so I think that speaks to the success of SB 277, even though it's only been in implementation for three years and has not reached full implementation yet. So. Um, SB 276, of course, was, uh, has been met with, uh, with uh, uh, vehement opposition from uh, the physicians who profit from uh, the activity, uh, the Physicians for Informed Choice uh, uh, leading charge. It was actually astonishing to me that Bob Sears himself, the one physician who actually has been sanctioned by the medical board for writing an inappropriate medical exemption, was the lead witness uh, <laughs> in, in one of the uh, hearings uh, on the bill. Uh, and certainly I think uh, my uh, colleagues uh, 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 saw through that and, uh, and I appreciate that uh, they uh, uh, understood how important it was that uh, we continue to maintain the 
gains we made with SB277 by passing SB276, and uh, and 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 they, you know, unfortunately they faced uh, uh, the vitriol from the anti-vaccine uh, uh, vac movement, uh, being mailed bricks, uh, uh, and uh, as well as, of course. Uh, um, you know, uh, being uh, harassed at uh, the town halls and other events that they've been holding. But, uh, you know, the, I would make note that um, the, uh, the PPIC here in California, it's a very highly respected nonpartisan group that does research and polling, uh, uh, did polling both for 277 and then later for 276. And when 277 is going through, it's... Uh, Two-thirds of Californians in that poll uh, said that children should be vaccinated to enter school, uh, so certainly a strong majority. Uh, when they did uh, a similar poll uh, recently, uh, 276 was going through, that number actually rose to almost three-quarters, from two-thirds to three-quarters. So I would point out that the general public is more strongly in favor of vaccination now than when we passed 277. And I think that's something that uh, people in uh, the legislature uh, need to take note of and remember. The public is strongly in favor of this kind of legislation. They are tired of, of uh, having their families put at risk uh, because a small minority of people uh, are choosing not to protect not only their own children, but putting the community at large at risk. So the road to getting SB 276 has been interesting. Uh, and part of it has been seeing all the many myths that, has been, that have been thrown around regarding the bill, one of which has been that this bill takes away essentially all medical exemptions and you get people claiming that all of their things that are not going to be covered uh, or that were that are medical exemptions of vaccines are not going to be uh, allowed to be exemptions anymore there's also people claiming that doctors won't see people with medical exemptions which i know as a pediatrician you know as a pediatrician that's ridiculous on the face of it but what what are the what are the major myths that have surrounded this uh, the this bill that has now passed, and um, how can we make sure that people have a good understanding of what these kinds of bills do and don't do? Well, I think one of the challenges in um, uh, in putting moving forward vaccination uh, legislation is is that the opposition is shameless, absolutely shameless mm -hmm. in making false claims, and they make them with great confidence. And the challenge is, is that legislators who are lay people um, oftentimes um, have, uh, it, it can be difficult to distinguish between uh, uh, true and false claims. And I would also point out, by the way, that this is a bit of a challenge also with the press as well. Uh, so um, uh, there are, you know, some many excellent science writers out there who may understand these things, but uh, the people who covered the Capitol are political reporters. They're not science reporters. And so when people make claims, they may not necessarily be in a good position to try to judge 
what is accurate and what is not. And they may just report what people say. The proponents say X, the opponents say Y. And then it's kind of like, well, they're being put in equivalent positions. And, uh, and, and so it, it is important to, um, uh, to, first of all, I say is that you need to focus on your own message first Okay, because the temptation is that to go down the rabbit hole with uh, trying to debunk all the myths, and mm-hmm. since they just throw them up there and they don't feel compelled to have to provide proof for them, uh, and then they say, well, you need to disprove what I say, uh, you can't spend all your time disproving what other people say. The first mm-hmm. job is to get your message across. So to stay focused on what you need to communicate and not spend the whole spend all your time worrying about what the opponents say. Uh, now, you do need to spend some time and effort debunking, but um, if that becomes your main message, then you've lost. And uh, so uh, we focused our message on the importance of uh, protecting all children. Uh, so the job of government is to protect children. Uh, we want to keep schools safe for all children. We have many laws and regulations that establish standards for keeping kids safe, and vaccinations is one of them. And, uh, and so this is certainly very consistent with uh, what uh, we do uh, for many other things around schools and children. Um, in, in terms of when people make claims that no one can get a medical exemption, uh, we, it's important for the physician community to say, well, I'm willing to write a medical exemption, right? And that's what they need to hear, right? So your uh, legislators need to hear from the doctors in their district, no, I'm willing to write a medical exemption. That can't be true. Um, so we just have to, you have to keep your message simple and focused, and then always go back to what uh, your main message is. Our main message is, is that it's uh, the reason uh, is, you know, I support the bill is because it's important to keep kids safe, and that's what this is about. And so, and we need parents. And, I, and as I was saying, with 276, parents need to be the face of the bill, supported by physicians and other experts, right? So we have to have parents talking about my child is a child who needs that protection from any from the other children. Uh, my child cannot be vaccinated and is vulnerable, so I need that protection. Uh, my child gets all the vaccines that they can get because I know how that helps protect both my child and other children. And then the physician says, and that parent is right. I agree with that parent. Is, is that, that's, that's the advice I give to my patients, and that's the advice I would give to that parent. And, that, uh, and, that, and I'm supporting that, uh, those parents. Thank you so much, Dr. Pan. You're always so gracious and even-headed, and I know that California really appreciates you, but I know the rest of the country does too. It was wonderful to hear this entire recap. I hope people really take from it how passionate you are personally about protecting children, but also why we are where we are right now, What what's happened over the course of time, and the fact that these bills weren't just your brainchild to write more vaccine bills, but that you were trying to respond to real community threats. 
Well, I have told people, people have asked me, so when will you stop writing vaccine bills? And I told them, I said, when we stop having outbreaks, I'll stop writing more vaccine bills. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, and I am so glad that you were able to um, talk to us today. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you to all of you for coming and joining us in this conversation, listening in. We love to have you here. Again, our uh, our take-home message is, what's what's our call to action, Nathan? Get your... Get your flu shot. Get it now if you can. Certainly get it before the end of October. Take your selfie. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra from Blank Children's Hospital here in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me on Twitter or Facebook or go to my blog, pedsgeekmd.com. But wait, Karen, what? we are going on tour. Oh, I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, this is exciting. We have tour dates in Seattle. Vax Talk Tours America. That's Well, or Seattle, because that's it so far. That's the tour. That's the tour. <laughs> Ta-da! Come see us in Seattle if you are so, going to that conference. T- t- okay, you, did you want to tell, or are we... Okay, now I feel like we've just... <laughs> do you want to tell about what the conference is? And no, I don't want it to be a surprise when we do it. Okay, never mind. Then nah. Forget our... the tour. All right, I'm going to stop recording now. Listen to our next podcast to find out where we toured to. <laughs> and end recording.